Hello, you are listening to Blamo. I am Jeremy Kirkland. And I am Noah Stittleman. And we have a very special episode with you today. We uh, brought a good friend of uh, Noah's and mine into our studio. It's a one-bedroom. It's a (laughs) one-bedroom. And uh, his name is Brian Davis, and you probably know him of uh, the awesome Vintage Empire clothing store, which is Wooden Sleepers. Brian, say hey. Hey, guys. You are live. You are on the air. And we brought you on to, uh, to talk to you because, at least for me, I've always, you've always been a good friend, a very intelligent guy, but you have a, a, quite the, the, the clothing and uh, the <laughs> vintage to begin with. You have quite the clothing, Mr. <laughs> Brian Davis. <laughs> Brian Davis owns a clothing store called Wooden Sleepers, which is located where? Red Hook, Brooklyn. Red Hook, Brooklyn. And you specialize in selling what kind of clothing? Vintage menswear, classic American styles. That's awesome. No funny business. And we're going to talk about that, but we're going to start with a little history, a little backtrack. Where did it all begin? Shit. Yeah, um, where, where are you from? Tell us where you're from. All right. I, I apologize for cursing already. No. Nope. Nope. Sorry. You're good. Uh, <laughs> I grew up on the east end of Long Island. Well, I should... I, I can start a little earlier than that. I was born in a in a town on Long Island called Huntington, and uh, when I was about five years old, I moved out to a small town on the North Fork of Long Island called Kutchog, uh, where I lived with my grandparents until I was about twelve or thirteen. Talk about Long Island. What what's what sort of how was life like growing up in Long Island? You know, when I was a kid, it was great. You know, those years at my grandparents' house were amazing. I mean, it was a really beautiful place um, called Nassau Point. It's a peninsula that sticks out okay. into the Peconic Bay. Um, and it's it's a really lovely place. Um, as a kid, it felt a little boring at times because there weren't any other kids around. So I spent a lot of time by myself. What sort uh, of stuff did you do? Like what's, um, what's the day in the life of little Brian Davis? <laughs> you know, I would walk around the woods a lot hmm. and I would walk around the beach a lot. And in the summer I would swim every day and play a lot of sports. <laughs> okay. Uh, I played like tennis and soccer and basketball and all sorts of stuff that kids do um, until I decided that that stuff uh, wasn't interesting to me anymore. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you is, can you pinpoint the moment that life goes from idyllic childhood, running around and playing in the woods and swimming to like angst-filled teenager for whom like (laughs) leaving this this oppressive jail of a hometown uh, is is foremost on your mind yeah well you know it didn't really happen that that quickly you know i was in this pretty nice setting and um i think for a lot of kids that kind of came of age in the 90s um this culture of alternative music was really picking up and and that seemed really interesting to me um as a younger person so fifth and sixth grade you know figure like 1990 two three four those years when you know nirvana and snoop doggy dog and like the css mail order skate catalog was coming and um you know 
it created kind of a line in the sand and I chose that side. That side was much more interesting to me. Totally. Do you feel like I always felt like that culture, like music and the, and the sort of subculture that we were into, because we grew up in different places, but we're into similar things, punk music and skateboarding and sort of like this counterculture, this really angry counterculture. But I feel like it kind of conditioned us to anger you know like i grew up in a beautiful place also you grew up in in long island where like people go on vacation i grew up in vermont where people go on like ski trips and yet like i had this like unmutable angst um and i wonder if like i had been like listening to like i don't know like uh sunny and Cher or something if i would have felt so angry or it's like i heard nirvana and i was like yeah yeah fuck you i am angry sure yeah yeah for sure you know i i think it was uh it was appealing in in a lot of respects but I, I also think it was circumstantial you know like the school I went to for some reason lumped everybody from seventh grade through 12th grade into the same school and it was very very small so you had like 12 and 13 year old kids walking around the same hall as like 17 and 18 year old kids okay. and so you know you were rubbing shoulders with kids who were like way older than you and it was really easy to say okay well i identify with that versus this and i want to be a part of that um and i don't know for whatever reason i I guess it's like why anybody gravitates towards something that is maybe not the popular thing or or the cool thing I, i don't know what it was but there was something about music and skateboarding and the aesthetics of so it. You, and you played music and you skateboard and you did all that? Because you also said, you know, you played sports, but it kind of got uninteresting. Yeah, I don't know what it was. It was just a switch. I think when I was young, I was just like, fuck this, fuck these phony people. I'm, Corporate. I don't, yeah, like just <laughs> fuck, fuck this. Like I don't want anything to do with this. And I liked skateboarding because you could do it by yourself. Yeah. And I think that's like a common thread. Like I was always into just doing things by myself and I liked skateboarding because you could just go out and do it by yourself. Were you good? I don't think I was that good, but I was good enough that it was fun. Could you kick flip? That's like the barometer of good <laughs> and not good, right? You know, what happened was skateboarding, <clears throat> not to go on a tangent, but you know, out there like I was maybe one of only like a handful of kids, maybe like two other kids in the whole entire school skateboarded. So what it forced you to do was um, there was a bus that would run from Orient Point all the way west along the North Fork through Riverhead and then loop back east through the Hamptons all the way out to East Hampton. And so for like a buck 50, what you could do is take the bus to all these different towns and find the other kids who are into skateboarding and into punk rock and into hardcore and playing in bands and were like-minded and you found your tribe and if you felt like you had nothing in common with anybody in your own school it was this thing of of finding these other individuals in all these towns and then all of a sudden you know, the situation in your local neighborhood became less important because you were like, well, okay, I can just take the bus out to Greenport or Southampton or East Hampton. And, um, you know, it's funny. People always think of like those towns as like really affluent and huge estates and Jerry Seinfeld and Puff Daddy. But, you know, like normal people live out there, you know, 
and you know we found those people like we live there where that's like my home it so. just occurred to me <laughs> that i want to start a band called roller sport rebellion um, <laughs> like everybody who's into like like for some reason like those roller sports no so i didn't skateboard i i was an aggressive inline skater you're uh, kidding me i <laughs> no, i swear to god <laughs> i was good i could i could soul grind Oh uh, front my side God. um <laughs> and, and i rock her all the way i was not good at skateboarding but i was okay at at aggressive inline skating but like for some reason like s- extreme sports with wheels e- equated like like fuck you mom <laughs> like you know and i still remember there was a like mtv used to have these you know interesting programming i guess for a young person and there was this one show about like it was like a half an hour special it wasn't part of a series and it was about skateboarding and inline skating in new york city and it was all these kids who like looked like they were from the movie kids and who skateboarded and rollerbladed and the whole soundtrack was like bc boys and punk music and i was Mm -hmm. like completely like yeah that's the thing that i want to want to belong to and i think but this i think is a good segue into how that feeling of sort of like even if it was self-imposed like isolation or just wanting to be part of the other sort of led you from like listening to music and consuming culture and and sort of participating as sort of a bystander to actually like forming bands and and playing music as a kid because you played music a lot yeah 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 you know i think that um where do I start? You know, I came to punk and hardcore again. It was, it was circumstantial. It was something that, um, growing up on the North Fork wasn't, it was nothing I'd ever heard of before, but my, a close friend of mine, um, named Jamie, his cousin was in a hardcore band called trip face and trip face was like (laughs) a really popular band. You know, and I didn't know this then, but like popular on like a record label or like popular like within the New York and Long Island hardcore scene, okay. which I at that point I didn't know even what that was. I just he was just <coughs> he guy. was just a guy in a band, and he was older, and I thought that was cool, and they looked cool, and they wore cool band T-shirts of bands I'd never heard of, and played this like really aggressive music that was so much faster and more energetic and aggressive than anything I'd ever heard before. Cause I was listening to like Nirvana and Cypress Hill and Snoop Dogg and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden I heard like this hardcore band and I was like, what is this? Like, this is amazing. And we would sneak into his cousin's house. And I should mention that this was on a farm. This was like in an actual farm. So there were these two houses. This is Long Island, North Fork, a town called Laurel. And we would sneak into his cousin's house and sit at the top of the basement stairs and listen to the band practice. And, (laughs) you know, they weren't like really very welcoming, you know, they would kind of be like, fuck off, you know, (laughs) but we would sometimes sneak into his cousin's bedroom while they were practicing and go through his seven inches and pick out seven inches that we thought had cool covers and, put them on the turntable and he had a tape deck hooked up to it and we would make tapes and we would just rip tapes of all so the you seven started, inches. You start bootlegging all this. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we didn't even know what it was, but then we would go back and listen to it and that's how we got into that type of music. And then we started our own band and we started finding other people that were in bands and, you know, that same cousin had a recording studio. So a lot of the big Long Island hardcore bands would come out east 
to record. So we got to meet these other bands. We got to record our own music. We got to find other people to play music with. And it really just became like a tribe, you know, and all that angst and turmoil and not fitting in shit that you go through in high school. It was like, fuck it. It didn't matter because on the weekends you were going out to these shows and playing with like hundreds of other people and cool other bands and you had this whole life that was like completely independent of anything that was going on in school, no matter how boring or terrible or awkward or any of the shit that everybody goes through. It was like this whole other life. So do you feel like it was a supportive community in that like, were the bands competitive with one another? Did bands want to be more successful? Did people look at it in terms of success or was it really this sort of idyllic picture that i have in my mind where like it's really just a community of like-minded people doing like-minded things who like cared about each other and cared about what each other were doing totally yeah no this was pre any notion of getting paid or success or getting on mtv when that mattered or it was pre like emo bubble bursting like dashboard confession all that shit that was like later you know so these were just high school kids playing music in vfw halls and knights of columbus and church basements and masonic temples they were like 16 year old kids booking their own shows and the thing about long island that was cool is that it was like a lot of people were interested in this sort of thing so you had these groups that became sort of like regional phenomenons where if they went anywhere else in the world no one would give a shit but on long island they were like kings and queens you know they would play for like like you know a thousand people like vod silent majority um gosh you know there's so many (laughs) uh and then all the bands that kind of came in their wake you know bands like mind over matter um and like these aren't bands you're gonna find on spotify right okay so if someone's listening and they, they can't just go look it up no but if they're from Long Island, they're going to be like, they're going to know exactly who it is. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, so. And then you, so you said you just recently, the band Silent Majority, who I don't know, so, <laughs> uh, <laughs> just were reunited and you saw them recently. Well, because, so, just backtracking a little bit, so St. Vitus, which is one of the shows I think you saw them at, mm-hmm. and St. Vitus is owned by people who also came out of the scene, and for those people who might be listening who don't know St. Vitus is uh, is a venue in Greenpoint Brooklyn that opened a couple of years ago that has really sort of it sort of started as a I would say like a place for like metal m- music but I think their their booking has become a lot more eclectic but it has definitely cemented itself as uh, one of the sort of premier smaller venues in music venues in Brooklyn uh, that people I think look to to sort of um, see like what they're doing is progressive um, and and the people who opened that, correct me if I'm wrong, came out of that same scene. Yeah, totally. So what? What's so you're in a band? What? How old are you? You know, my first day of school when I was a freshman in high school, the two other kids that listened to this kind of music in my entire school came up to me and asked if I wanted to join a band. So this and is I just said, like, yeah, sure. You want to belong? So you're you're 14 or 15. Well, I liked the music and I liked the idea of doing it, you know. Yeah. And I said, yeah of course you know and they needed a singer and i'd never sang in my life and i went over to their house after school and they handed me a mic and you know we covered a trip face song and we covered like 
a chokehold song and like an earth crisis song and i just yelled until i couldn't yell anymore and uh i got in the band so what what was that band called <laughs> oh my god uh tell us it was called monument just so you know monuments <laughs> just so you know if you feel embarrassed by that i i mean i don't because it was a fun memory and a and a time that i look back on uh yeah, fondly. But my anyway, high, yeah. My high school hardcore punk band was called Utter Chaos, and Utter was spelled like a cow utter because we're from Vermont. From Vermont, so, obviously. <laughs> you know, Monument <laughs> is, Monument strikes me as being as a, a better name than Utter Chaos. So the question I have is: so sort of flash forward a couple of years, Jeremy and I met you when we were sort of in our very early twenties in New York City. Um, we all worked together, and I distinctly remember seeing your band. Uh, for the first time at uh, a venue called North Six, which is actually now Music Hall of Williamsburg, but it sure. was called North Six. And that band was called Encrypt Manuscript. Um, and I remember, I mean, I saw a lot of Encrypt Manuscript shows. We, we became very good friends after that, but I remember that first show I had just met you. Uh, and you worked with us and we were, became friendly. We could tell we had common interests. And you said, hey, my band's playing. You should come check out the show. And I remember coming and checking out the show and being completely blown away so it was like just to give people a sense for what this music was it's sort of like it had at the drive-in like qualities it had a sort of like hardcore punk sort of emo screamy mentality but the guitar playing is really ornate almost jazzy the drumming was very very proficient and then your singing and your and your stage presence was almost unhinged, like screamy, volatile, uh, literate, you know, with these really smart uh, lyrical themes. Um, so, and I just remember feeling like, wow. Uh, and I, that sense of wow maintained for the entire duration of that band uh, that I witnessed from there. So can you talk a little bit about how you ended up in the Encrypt Manuscript and sort of what that band meant to you? Yeah, um... It's funny. I've never really talked about this in in this way, but you know that group was comprised of of all people from that Long Island hardcore scene, um, and we formed on Long Island. Like we were very much a Long Island band, except um, the guitarists uh, Jordan Achille and John Phillips. I didn't know them, um, and they were different. They were just different and they wanted to do something different. And what, what do you mean by different? Like they like music surveyed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, totally. And they, they were surveying the climate in the early two thousands on long Island, which was this very like heavy. That's like taking back Sundays. Yeah. Sort of th so you had these, like these bands that were getting snatched up and signed to major labels. Yeah. Like, taking back Sunday and brand new. And these were like acquaintances of ours, you know? Sure. And this emo thing was like getting really popular and bands were getting signed and it was, it was kind of mainstream. a weird time. Yeah. But then on the other side, you had this like really like obnoxious metallic cheese ball, like hardcore metal stuff with kids wearing like eyeliner and like like hate breed style stuff like rum, 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 no 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 like, no no like i mean i think they're like a real hardcore right, band sure. and i you know I, I i like that old stuff but anyway no <laughs> like um 
I'm not going to name names, but you know, it, it was no, this, no. this kind of like cheesy, <laughs> like really heavy, like nothing really to it. And, you know, Jordan and John were like, yeah, we're not going to play with distortion. And I was like, well, I thought we were like a punk, like a hardcore band. Style stuff? I, it was never discussed. They were just like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to play totally clean. So you guys and, didn't have like a band meeting of like, who are we? This no, is no, 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 no. We all got together and, and they said, how about something like this? And we were just like, okay, cool. That's cool. But, you know, I was always in like hardcore bands. So that's that was like sort of the the energy that I brought to that group, I think. Um and it became this thing that was really like oppositional <laughs> as much as I loved the Long Island punk and hardcore scene. I feel like when we first started, it was a reaction to what was going on and we just wanted to do something different and something that was a little bit, um, I don't know. I don't know what it was. It was just, it was almost in opposition and, and uh, to what was going on at that time. Um, in turn, we were never really embraced by that community, <laughs> but we found other like-minded artists, uh, and bands on Long Island and kind of just like formed our own thing that was still under that umbrella, but it was, it was our own. There's a, there's a few things about Encrypt Manuscript that always struck me. One of them was the fact that like both Jordan and, and, uh, John, didn't use distortion and and you know they're you'd look at stage and the, the only pedals that they had was a tuning pedal right. and they were just using like the sound of their amps and the way that jordan plays guitar and the guitar interplay uh conrad's bass playing i think is really really unique and 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 the sort of like almost like there were parts of it that almost felt like punk but like free jazz and i know there was a lot of influence uh, like ian savonius influence for you and makeup influence um but the i guess the last question i have about Encrypt before we move to who you are now. Um, <laughs> who am is I? Is that I always, you know, I was listening to Census, which is the Encrypt manuscript record that you made sort of right before you guys broke up, which, by the way, is probably on iTunes. Fantastic fucking record. Like, I think it's only on MySpace. Oh, really? I have it. If you email me, <laughs> I'll send it to you, and then you can get, you can Venmo me 10 bucks. I did tell Conrad the other day, who is our bassist, I said, hey, are you aware that the only place on the entire internet that you can listen to our band is on MySpace? And it's this weird, like aughts digital graveyard Dude, of on, content get it on spotify like it's easy to get it on spotify we can talk about it after but like that thank record you, needs to you. be heard it is a fantastic fucking <laughs> record it is so good um shout an, out to uh, alex newport an unsung record uh anyhow but the question that i have about it is that you know aside from the sort of musicianship which is wonderful on it uh the lyrical content is distinct and strong and from a, a very uh, a pointed perspective. And I was wondering if you like could talk about like how your experiences growing up on Long Island and sort of becoming an adult informed your lyric writing and sort of what, what did you feel was the prevailing message that you wanted to communicate as the front man of this band? You know, I was always writing from a young from a like the first time that I was in a band I mean that was just the job right like you had to write lyrics and I remember the first time I ever tried to write lyrics you know they're terrible it's like just typical shit that you write when you're a kid you know you it's all topical it's like 
whatever's going on around you, you write about. But I liked writing a lot. I think I liked you went, writing. You went to school for writing, right? I think I ended up liking writing way more than a normal person because I had a band, right? So I had a platform and a, and a vehicle. And when you write lyrics and then people are singing along to those lyrics and people are responding positively to them, then, okay, well, that's like really encouraging. And even if you look back and think, wow, okay, that was really garbage um, at the time, it was enough encouragement to keep going and try to get better. Um, so as I sort of developed as a writer, I was just always trying to write the best lyrics that I could. I mean, I think that's what everybody does as a songwriter. Lyrics were always important to me. That was like the thing that I felt like I was bringing to the table. I never felt like I was a good singer. I never felt like I was like a naturally gifted vocalist. Like I can't even sing. I just thought like this was the thing that I can do that I felt like was better than some, you know? (laughs) And I looked to lyricists you know like Gee and like these people who were in punk and hardcore bands but had these like atypical sort of interesting poetic um nuanced lyrics and i just tried to i just like did my best did you, you know? I, I, mean, I think you did great and i wonder like would you do you feel like there's any overarching theme like over like a like a definitive thing that you were trying to communicate through those lyrics that you, I mean, whether you succeeded or not, like that was your intent? No, no, I don't think that there was a theme or an overarching sort of idea that I was trying to communicate. It was really just personal. They're, they're beautiful lyrics. So (laughs) Increment Manuscripts, you can't find it anywhere. Find them on MySpace. And oh my God. but that's so but embarrassing. I, I, I really do think that <laughs> that the lyrical content of those of those songs is is um, uncommonly good. Thank Agreed. you, thank yeah. you, thank you. You so, know, it's funny like that experience. Like, it may not make any sense to anybody that knows me, or maybe for people who do know me, it it makes perfect sense. But you know, that experience kind of coming to an end segued into wooden sleepers like it seems like they would have absolutely nothing to do with one another but um it 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 got me right there it brought me as one ended the other was was beginning so connect the dots then for me in regards of you you're in a pretty legit killer punk slash not punk neo-punk new wave jazz free (laughs) disco yeah i mean you know we, we spent time like doing all the typical you toured, right? hardcore band shit yeah and it was like it was an interesting time right because it was like right on the cusp of when everybody had a smartphone everybody had internet access and email right in their pocket it was like right before that happened so you know we didn't have shit like we didn't have cell phones we didn't have maps in our pockets like it was probably the last opportunity a band could have to do something like that in that way where it was that really just down and dirty like shitty $400 Chevy work van plug in away state by state like 
full U.S. tours, like, you know, sleeping on floors, not knowing what the hell was going on, getting lost, showing up in cities, having shows be canceled, vile situations of, like, cockroaches and disgusting places where you would sleep and or not sleep sometimes and... And you're you like, know, hey, going to start. like public libraries to check your email to find out what was even going on with a show. And, you know, it was like a lot of fun. <laughs> and it was probably the last time that a band would get to experience that in that way, which I think there's there's merit to. Um, certainly, I feel like it's it's probably better now. But <laughs> um, when that ended, I was naturally like feeling at a loss creatively and i didn't know what the hell i was doing that was like you know we were friends always been, at this point yeah and yeah. you had always been buying clothes though since i've known you like when i think when i first when i first met you out so outside of work i you like if you can't obviously you can't see him because you're listening to this but he was like there's that one friend in your life that like feels like they're kind of in this other era and like walk on this other cloud. And I remember when I first met you, you had these like really cool kind of high waisted jeans, but they were like almost like kind of <laughs> creased a bit, but non creased. And you had a blue ringer t-shirt on and an extremely large head of curly hair and a mustache. <laughs> and um, like you were that guy. And I was like, man, how, how do I be that guy? How do I be that guy? I don't know. I don't know. But, but so so you're buying so you're buying clothes and like wh- how does this happen you're you're on tour and you're like oh I'm no, like collecting no, no, this no, stuff no, what no, is no, no. no it, it okay. happened like way before that like you know and I won't take too much time on this but no, like the please. vintage thing like it was always there sure um it was always there from a young age like and I always liked clothes like before I even knew what vintage clothing was or secondhand clothing I always liked clothes I think a little bit more than maybe a normal person um I've seen your closets you got some stuff it's a problem I'm a normal person I don't like clothes yeah <laughs> I like clothes I like clothes I always liked clothes I liked um that feeling like the first day of school when you have like a really fresh outfit and you just feel like a fucking a million dollars. Going. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> like there, I loved that feeling. And I, I remember so vividly the first piece of clothing I was ever like enamored with. And I was in fourth grade and it was a pair of Adidas Samba classics. Yep. And I remember thinking like, Oh my God, these are the coolest. This is like the hottest shit I've ever seen. And, you know, my grandma, bless her heart, she she bought them for me. And I put those things on and I felt like You're in. the coolest kid in school. I yeah. felt like a million dollars. And I always loved that feeling. And that I sort of took that with me along that whole journey of like alternative music and punk and skateboarding and hardcore and all that shit. Like I always loved um seeking out clothing and from the time I was old enough to start buying my own clothes I was like raking leaves for my neighbor's like dad's landscaping company and he was paying me like seven bucks an hour or something and I could just go buy like skateboards and CDs and you know around the time I was like a freshman in high school, I just started going to thrift stores because I liked 
vintage t-shirts and old Levi's and I thought it looked cool. You know, you, you gotta like well, you did. transport yourself You're back good. to like <laughs> 1996 and like everyone is wearing like, you know, whatever they were wearing, like Tommy Hilfiger and Abercrombie and Polo. And I was like, you know, I love Polo as an aside, but like, you know, I was like, fuck this. Like I'm going to go and, and buy these like 50 cent graphic tees and, you know, Dickies and whatever. And just, I don't know. I, so just, I just liked it. When did it click that you were like, okay, maybe I can sell some of this stuff and start a business? When, when was that? Oh, shit. You know, that was like in that transitional period after, after Encrypt Manuscript. I wasn't doing anything. I was like just working with you guys. We were like hanging out at Herms and drinking beer and eating burritos and Watching doing Entourage. like nothing. I literally have drank two beers and ate a burrito today, so life is <laughs> much the same. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, you know, nothing wrong with burritos and beers. Um, but, you know, it was really Allison, my wife now, my girlfriend at the time, you know, she was like, well, you really like vintage menswear. She basically like laid out my whole business plan in like one sentence. She was like, I think she recognized that like I needed a creative outlet. I needed something to do that was fulfilling. Your day job isn't going to be fulfilling. Mine certainly wasn't. Um, and she was like, why don't you start a vintage men's clothing store online? Right, which is at the time when you had started it, it was pretty much unheard of. No sure. one, no one was really doing it. At yeah, all. yeah, yeah. But it was good timing, right? Because yeah. it was like an it was an interest I already had, and mm-hmm. it was like right at the onset of this like menswear America movement. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like the blogger thing, pop yep. up flea, Americana heritage, whatever, yeah. all that shit. You know. Um, which people like talk down on now because it's it's over, but There's you know it certainly got people around. thinking yeah, in a different way, and I think that that's that's a positive. You know, I don't think the your average yeah, like your average guy was not thinking about like oh, where was this made? Who yeah. made this? How is like what's was the this story person treated ethically? This like yeah, these like independent brands started popping up. Like I think that's all like a good thing, so people can like talk shit about like heritage and Americana, and I do think that there were like people who just rode that wave to make a quick buck sure but then there's like a lot of really great people and i I did i do think it changed the way that like a certain guy thought about buying clothes and i think my interest in vintage and like you know sort of like classic american style and growing up on the east coast and you know just all that stuff kind of culminated in wooden sleepers and quickly like found an audience which was unexpected because it was really just like a fun thing to do. But like within like three months of putting stuff online, we had like gotten a little press. We got invited to pop up flea where we were like the only vintage seller. We're sitting next to like brands like Warby Parker, J crew, Red Wing, Levi's, LL bean, and then getting to meet these like cool young independent brands that we didn't even know existed. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh, okay. There's like people are here and they're buying things. And it's like, a community and it's pretty incredible. And so when did you decide to make the transition from like online sales and pop-up fleas to like your full brick and mortar store that you're running now? You know, I think that I always wanted to have a store. It was always a dream of mine. That was the end Um, goal. Even from a young age. Like I remember in 2000, I used to like go to borders and I had no money, but I would like sit on the floor and borders and read these like startup, store for dummies books <laughs> and like just read about it and i remember even calling like 
retail stores like on Long Island around the universities because I was like, oh, like college kids, like they like vintage, like I could do it over there. And I'm like 17, 18. I have no money, no idea what the hell I'm doing. But it was always something that I thought like, wow, it would be cool to have a vintage men's clothing store. And I think that 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 feeling just grew and grew and grew. And a lot of it, um, I always say that it, it kind of like came from sort of a punk attitude of like, going to vintage stores and being like god this sucks like there's nothing good here like what what is going on like it's like overcrowded all the best shit isn't for sale it's like hanging up real high you can't touch it it smells weird it's crowded the customer service sucks it's all women's wear except for like one shitty rack of like polyester men's shirts and i was just like you know what there's like gotta be this is so fucking cliche this is like the ultimate cliche like entrepreneurial thing that I'm going to say right now, but I was like, there's got to be a better way. (laughs) Shark tank. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, and you know, that's, that's kind of how it started. We, it was really kind of a natural progression from like being in my one bedroom apartment that Noah ended up living in and putting my mattress up on the wall and putting like duct tape down on the floor to create like mock-ups of a booth space for like, you know, different pop-ups and things like that to then moving into like a studio space that we were sharing with our friend, Justin Chung, who's become a really successful fashion photographer and my wife, you know, who is a jeweler. So it's like this cool little creative space where we could then kind of set up and have little appointments and start to get customers in and they'd buy things and press Hmm. we could invite in and say like, yo, look what we're doing. In hindsight, it was like so modest and so ridiculous and so tiny. But you were doing it. There's a big difference. Kind of doing it, yeah. Yeah. And then I got married in 2013. And after that, it was sort of like, what are we doing with this? And, and, you know, Allison was really the one who was like, yo, do, do it. Just go for it. Like you have my blessing. Like, so what, so this, what, 2014 is that you just like 13 or 2014. Okay. So you opened a shop in where? Well, I spent the remainder of 2013 into 14 looking at storefronts, like all over the place. I was like walking up. I live in Greenpoint with, with Allison and, I was walking all around Greenpoint, looking at every storefront. They were all really expensive or just in such states of disrepair that it was like impossible for me to do it because I had no money and didn't really like know what the hell I was doing anyway. Sure. Um, And then my friend Tom Serpo, I was complaining to him one day. I was like, yo, this is crazy. Like I, I just, I'm looking at all these storefronts, these nothing, this is like impossible. There are no storefronts up there. Like the fuck like i want to be a part of this small business community but there's just nothing available and he's like well why don't you look somewhere else out of outside of greenpoint yeah yeah yeah. and i was like so where'd you end up looking well you know i went back to my computer and i opened up craigslist and i just instead of typing in greenpoint storefront i just looked at brooklyn storefronts (laughs) right and you know what was like the first thing that popped up was 416 van brunt street red hook brooklyn i'd never been to red hook in my life but i went down there in the dead of winter in january it was cold it was dark. There wasn't a soul in sight. And Red Hook is pretty, like, if you haven't been to Red Hook, it's very difficult to get to in regards of, like, commuter trains and subway and stuff. It's, right. it's not, you know. Yeah, but I had a car, and so I drove down, and I'm coming down down Van Brunt towards the water. Right. And I'm driving along, and I'm, like, getting a good vibe. Like, this is it, you know. And I get to the store and it's got four walls. It's got a storefront. It's got a floor. And I was like, okay, like this is it. it. This is it. Yeah. 
And the other thing about Red Hook that I, I think maybe if, like Jeremy said, sort of it is sort of isolated from the rest of the city, um, somewhat because there's a fucking freeway between it and the rest of the city. Yes. Thank Robert Moses for that, right? Um, but it is this little enclave where there are things happening. Like that stretch of Van Brunt, it's not just wooden sleepers. There's restaurants and there's other shops. And there is sort of this feeling when you're down there, almost of like if you went to like Hudson, New York, and you stumbled on like Warren Street, which is the main street in Hudson, New York, where there is like a community of, of shops and commerce and things happening. Yeah, I mean, there's a really vibrant small business community there. And I really wanted to be a part of a small business community. I liked the feeling that these were all independently owned and operated businesses, that there were no big businesses with the exception of Ikea, which isn't even really like on the main drag. It's sort of off on on a pier removed from, from Red Hook. Um, But they're all local businesses there, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're all independent businesses. There's amazing restaurants and shops. And, you know, I didn't really know that at the time. It's not like I spent all this like, time doing market research and like you know what's like the traffic there and what you know like it's this like up and coming it wasn't that at all like people always ask me like oh why red hook why this that i mean like i said it was luck for one thing but then when i got there it was just this feeling of like looking around and seeing the other businesses and this feeling of like okay this is familiar you know where i grew up there was a main street where all the shops were there was a barber and the post office and the butcher and you know the candy shop and the little deli where you could get sandwiches and shit after school and there was a bank and whatever and that was like how it went so when i got down to van brunt let alone the fact that it was just like a block from new york harbor and you could smell the salt water coming up the air which was like really familiar (laughs) and just brought me right back home Um, It was that sense of like, okay, this is like, this is a small business community. um, And, you know, I just, I want to be a part of this. So you got your storefront in Red Hook and you started building out your store. And I guess I'm curious to hear you talk about what was your overarching sort of philosophy for the store? Like, what did you want people to walk in and feel? Because when I go into your store, I feel like it's so well designed and curated and set up that it every little bit of it feels intentional so i just i want to know more about that intent yeah um i just wanted to have a really good store i don't know (laughs) there it was i had spent a significant amount of time doing these pop-up shops and these little markets and I'd had some experience setting it up. So I naively went into the store like, oh, this will be easy. I got the keys in like February. And I was like, this is just like a pop-up shop. I'll just set up some racks and put shit out and it'll be dope. And then it was like six months later, we opened the door. It it was all these expenses. And I swear I was on like a first name basis with the people at Home Depot because I was spending so much time going there for like different materials. And you got to like build out like a backup house and shelving and air conditioning and 
then you realize like the storefront itself looks like shit and you got to figure that all out. And then you got to like build a fitting room and yeah, the floors are messed up. Inventory and, yeah. And, you got to yeah. put, I had Noah, Business I had Noah <laughs> and you and like Danny Calderon and, and Andrew Hermida down there just tying pins to hang tags for like four hours. And James Jean, like, buttoning like tags to you know because it you don't realize when you're getting started like how much time everything takes and you know i have a day job at this point so i'm like working 40 hours nine to five or whatever and then going there at night from like six to two and then all weekend yeah so side like, note, you continue to be the hard hardest working person i've ever met <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. i mean you know it's just it it turned into this thing of like your months in the store's not open. You're hemorrhaging money every morning. It's like panic and anxiety and like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I got to get the store open. Like, what is going on? You know, and finally we open in November of 2014 and it was like such a relief, you know? Yeah. Because we got it set up and we wanted it to look nice and there was no grand opening. There was no fuss. There was no like publicist. There was no opening party with nope. like fancy people and no red carpet. And and nothing none tacky of that shit. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was just like, I remember like looking around and I said to Allison, I was like, you know, this looks like a store. Can we open? Yeah. And she's like, yeah, I mean, it looks, seems like a store. It's definitely a store. If you've never yeah. been in there, like, you know, quickly I, I'll describe it is, have you been to like an incredibly well-merchandised Ralph Lauren boutique? Have you ever seen like actual vintage props, actual old books, old, you know, custom reclaimed wood shelves? I mean, it's like Urban Outfitters eat your heart out. I mean, it's actually, it's really, really good. And it's, to me, it's, you know, it's cool because you didn't have a planogram in market research. You're like, yeah, I think I know how to do this. And you did. And and that to me is, is like why not only did I want to have you on just because at the end of the day, it turns into this circle of you want to continue this small community. You want to bring in this, you know, is, is Red Hook a bunch of hardcore kids? I don't know, maybe. But like, you know, you want to bring <laughs> this community in and you also you started something and you started a business that's in my opinion, really successful. Look, I mean, people look around the store and like, yeah, it's, it's kind of rooted in this classic American style. Like, you know, we sell like old LL Bean and Brooks brothers shirts and like, you know, military chinos and like field coats and like all these sort of like timeless pieces that are just like rooted in classic American style that like any guy I feel like, can come in and find something that they like. Um, it's not trash and vaudeville, right? Yet I feel like it's rooted in a punk ethic. It's rooted in this idea of DIY. And I learned all that shit coming up, playing in bands on Long Island. And this notion of like getting signed to a label and having a record put out that shit never crossed our mind once. And I brought that right into the business of like, you want to do a store, like figure it out. Like I called up all my friends, my father-in-law shout out Mr. Freyna, like help me build the whole thing. You know, my friend Mark, like he used to be like the builder at Dia art museum. He's like, yo, I'll help you out. And like, I didn't know how to build shit. Like, I wasn't a carpenter. You know, like, my father's an artist. Like, I didn't even have tools. Like, everything I needed to build the store, I had to go buy and, like, just figure it out. And I feel like that sort of punk 
ethic is so ingrained in there because I've touched every single piece of it. And like, we have no partners. There's no like finance shit. There's no publicist. There's no like loan. Like this is like a truly like independent DIY affair. And you know, it just, I feel like that is all stuff that I learned growing up skateboarding, going to punk rock shows, putting out my own records, forming bands, making zines, talking to people, building community and being a reaction to like things that I thought like sucked. Like I think it fucking sucks that places like Zara and (laughs) places like these huge fast fashion, like places, uh, that that's like the default sort of place for totally. People. And I think what's really successful for me about when I go into wooden sleepers, when I think about wooden sleepers is the execution because <clears throat> pardon me, because all of that stuff is good. But if the store sucks or your vision for it, isn't really airtight, then it doesn't matter. Right. Right. right but right. you go into wooden sleepers and for me, almost it doesn't feel like a vintage store. Like when you were talking before about the idea of a vintage store being like just a bunch of racks with stuff that you don't want and the nice stuff high up. When I go into Wind Sleepers, I feel like it's a clothing store. Yeah. For dudes, of which I am one, just barely, <laughs> but I, I cross the line. And I could see myself rifling through like going to the rack of t-shirts and be like, okay, what t-shirts is wooden sleepers offering Mm -hmm. going to the coats and seeing like going to the shoes and everything is where I would expect that thing to be in a really well merchandised store that's selling like nice new stuff. And so the experience of it is familiar, but the discovery is so unexpected because when you get to those, those expected sort of, nodes of t-shirts and jackets and ties and socks or whatever it is what you find is stuff that you wouldn't normally find in a new place it's not stuff that you can just look at on the website online if it was uniqlo or ralph lauren or whatever it is uh and i think that mixture of the expected and the unexpected makes it such a cool shopping experience for somebody like me who like wants to buy in but doesn't know how um, right, you make it right, very right. easy to buy in. Yeah. Well, you know, the idea was to be inclusive. Like I come from many, many years in retail and I don't feel like this is like a cool kid club or someplace that you have to be like a connoisseur of vintage clothing to come enjoy. Like the place is supposed yeah, it's to not be intimidating. It's I supposed agree. to be welcoming. Like it's supposed to be friendly. It's not pretentious. Like, we try to price things in a way that they're like attainable and mm-hmm. not too precious. Like the highest compliment is like when somebody comes in and wears something out because it's just like, cool, like this is perfect. I'm just going to throw this on and just go. Um, most people are not connoisseurs that come into the store. Like they are not people who like scrutinize every little detail. And don't get me wrong. Like I love those people too. Cause I'm one of those people and I love like nerding out over like the details between like, you know, an M five one and an M six five and like going through all these different little details and appreciating the, <laughs> the differences and like the little nuances and subtle details and like the way like a pocket is stitched or something, you know, I, I like that too. But like most people that come in are just like, first of all, they don't even know it's a vintage store, which is cool. Because, you know, I just, I like that. They're like, oh, is this, is this stuff old? Is this, is this used? <laughs> you know? <laughs> but then there's this nostalgic 
kind of familiar thing that settles in really quickly where people are like, oh, you know, like my dad had this or my grandpa had this right. or this feels this a certain already. way yeah. or this feels warm or cozy or comfortable. And I, I love that because at the end of the day, like it's a store, like we sell stuff, but you know, it's also an environment and we try to like make it not intimidating, you know, like yeah. I remember some of these like record stores I would go to when I was a little kid, I was like terrified. It was like the high fidelity thing, you know, where you yeah. like go into these places and like, you don't know what you're doing. You're intimidated, but you want to be there and the people are assholes and it's scary, but you know, this it's just fucking clothes. Like it shouldn't be a big deal. I think, know? yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's a good, that's a good point for us to call it. <laughs> you know, I, I agree. Um, so if, I'm listening to this and I'm like, oh, well, wooden sleepers is the only is the only way to ever interact with you via your your brick and mortar store. Do you have now's your now's your time to give your shout out for your social handles if you want? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, you I know, mean, are look, you on Instagram? Like, yeah, yeah, Instagram, like it's just wooden sleepers, one word, um, Twitter, all that shit. You know, I'm out. <laughs> Yo, we're we're out here. Google wooden sleepers, you'll find yeah, everything yeah. you need to know. You know, you'll find us, and you'll find like industrial railroad supply companies. Um, nice, but yeah, no, I'm out there. It's me. You know, it's 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 like, like I said, there's not some like PR machine. <laughs> like, yeah. it's just me. You yeah. know, it's just me and and like my small team. Shout out Maurice. There you go. Shout out Justin, Brahma. Like we hold it down and it's just like a small family affair. So nice. Um it's 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 that's it. Cool. Well thank you so much for coming on. It was awesome to have you. I love you very nah. much. <laughs> I love you guys too. Thank <laughs> you. So this was great. Thanks. You were listening to Buemo. Um if you like what you heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. And also, if you want to find us elsewhere on the web, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Blamo Podcast. And if you want to email us, our email is blamopodcast at gmail. And it'd be good to hear from you. But uh, thanks so much for listening. Thanks, everybody. Take care.